It's also in your worship guide, page 6, Colossians 1, and we'll be in verses 12 through 14. The Bible says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now as we get into your word that you bless the time, enlighten our minds. May your Holy Spirit teach us, Lord, from your word this morning. Encourage us, guide us, rebuke us if necessary, Lord. But above all, draw us nearer to you. Bless our offering. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're at this morning, continuing our series in the book of Colossians. We're in verses 12 through 14, we read earlier. Paul has just given us a powerful prayer. We looked at that last week, didn't we? He thanks God for the faith of the Colossian church and the love, which he says are fruits of their loving and believing the gospel. I think there's solid ground biblically for us to believe that if we believe the gospel, if we love the gospel, if we embrace the gospel, the gospel will bear fruit in our lives. He then sets out to pray for them in verses 9 through 11. We read that last week, praying they would have wisdom and spiritual understanding. That is, they would understand spiritual truths. He prays for their walk. They would be holy and without blame. They would increase in the knowledge of God, which would thus lead to greater holiness. He prays for their endurance in the faith. He wants them to be steadfast and patient in the Christian life. This is the prayer of Paul that we looked at last week for the Colossian church. Uh, If I can sum that up in two quick bullet points, Paul prayed for people he didn't know better than I pray for people I do know most of the time. Remember, he had never met the Colossians. They'd never seen his face. He didn't know them personally. But when you look at what he prayed for them, he didn't pray for their their wealth, their comfort, their ease. What did he pray for? He prayed for real spiritual things that only God could produce in their life. He prayed that their walk would be holy and without blame. He was more concerned that they walked in holiness than he was that they were wealthy. Right? He prayed that they would increase in their knowledge of God more than they would end their persecution. Think about that. You ever notice how we pray differently? Right? What what do we pray? We're going out to preach the gospel. What, What do we pray? Lord, protect us. What did the early Christians pray in the book of Acts when they were actually being killed for the faith? They said, Lord, give us more boldness that we might speak your word more faithfully, right? We pray differently than they prayed in the Bible. So when I pray for people, I don't don't typically do this. I should. I should. Lord, make Brother Mike more steadfast in his Christian life. Give Brother Tatsuo greater spiritual understanding as he enlightens the eyes of sinners with the gospel. Lord, that Jason would walk in greater holiness and that he would draw nearer to the Lord, leading to even more holiness, right? 
And how often do I, do I not do that? How often do I just pray, Lord, bless Jason. Be with Tatsuo. Lord, put a hedge around Mike. Right? We, we pray so frivolously. Paul didn't pray for people frivolously. Right? Because he was a person who believed that God would act on what he prayed for. Therefore, he prayed for real things. Again, if we believe that God is going to act on our behalf, we're going to pray for real things. We're not going to pray nonsense. And sometimes I realize, I confess, that my nonsense praying is a sign I don't really believe that God's going to do anything. It's a sign of my unbelief. I mean, if if I'm sitting around hypothetically with my wife, thinking, oh, if I could have any three things I want, what would they be, right? I'm going to think of weird things, right? Just a room full of peanuts. I mean, just weird things. (laughs) But if I get a solid invitation from the President of the United States to come stand before him in the Oval Office, he says, I will give you three things that you ask me for. Just ask me and I'll give you those three things. I'm going to ask for some serious things. I'm going to think it through before I speak, right? I'm not asking for frivolous things. He has the power and the money to give me some things that I could request. It's not hypothetical anymore. Sometimes I pray like I'm talking to my wife about hypothetical situations in the living room. Not like I'm standing before a God who can and will do what I've asked him to do. So Paul, he prayed well. He didn't pray quick, generic prayers. He prayed prayers that demonstrate real soul searching over what he's praying for. How often do we soul search our prayer life? Right? We're more prone to just pray the quick five-second prayer get us get our devotions over with, right? By the way, let's stop talking about devotions. Let's stop having devotions. I don't like that term. Devotions are a five-minute thing. You check off a list every day to get it out of the way, and then you don't do it the rest of the day. We're called to meditate on the Word of God day and night. We're called to talk about the things of the Lord when we lie down, when we get up, when we walk by the way, when we walk around our house. We're to dwell on the things of the Lord. Let's stop with this devotions nonsense. My five verses and I'm done for the day. Listen, if all you can read is five verses, read five verses and then spend the whole day meditating on those five verses. Thinking about it, turning it in your mind and saying, how can this apply to me? How can this change my life? And if we have time, maybe we should take more than five verses. Maybe we should read uh, I, I'll probably mention my, it's in my notes for my sermon tonight, but Jim Elliott, the missionary, would read the Bible until God spoke to him. Think about that. Sometimes he, you, you need to, I keep recommending books. I, I told someone yesterday I need to get a recommended reading list, but get a book. It's a, it's a thick book. It's very long. It's called The Journals of Jim Elliott. And all his journals are is his devotions written down. What he was reading, what he's seeking God about. And what you'll find is time after time, he opened the word of God and he didn't close it until God spoke to him, which sometimes was 10 or 12 chapters later. In other words, there was real soul wrestling there. There was a, remember Jacob when he wrestled, right? What did he do? He grabbed a hold. He said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. That's what Jim Elliott did. I'm not letting go until you do something. I'm not letting go until you speak to me in some way. 
Maybe our prayer lives, folks, we need to just get down on our knees and tell God, I'm not getting up until you direct my prayers. Until you give me things to pray about for other people. We don't want to be frivolous with our praying. Paul wasn't frivolous. Then we come to verse 12, our text. And he starts by saying, giving thanks unto the Father. Now he's already given thanks to verses 3 through 6, so he's not, he's not breaking out into a new prayer of thanksgiving. But what I believe he's doing is he's giving us the basis for his belief in answered prayer. The basis, the foundation of answered prayer is the title for the sermon. He's giving us the foundation. Paul is approaching God, believing that God is willing and ready to answer his prayer. That's why he's so specific, right? That's why he's so spiritual in his prayers. Because these are spiritual things. We can't fake this stuff, right? We can't fake deeper holiness. We can't fake spiritual understanding. You you can fake so many things, right? Uh, If I pray for someone, I, I say, Lord, bless Amy. Just bless her. Just, if she finds a dollar in the Walmart parking lot, that's, that's a blessing. That's a dollar more than she had before, right? And we can pray such a way where we can find the silliest mundane answers and say, oh, God heard my... But when we're praying for someone who doesn't have spiritual understanding to have spiritual discernment, and that starts to play itself out, that's of the Lord, right? They can't do that. Or we have somebody who's backsliding or somebody who's not walking as they should walk as a Christian and we're praying for God to give them a greater holiness and they come under conviction of sin and they confess their sin and begin to walk differently. We can look at that and say, God has answered our prayer. We can't fake that. We don't, we didn't do that. We pray in such a way sometimes we're so afraid of not getting answers, right? Let's be honest. We're afraid that God's not going to answer our prayers. And so we pray in such a way that we can't tell whether he really did or didn't. I think I mentioned before, I was at a church one time that had a revival meeting. Whole week of revival meeting. At the end of the week, the pastor got up. Nothing had changed. Nothing was different. It was just extra church services, but no, there was no move of God. You guys know what revival is, right? It's a move of God. Like, it's unmistakable. When revival happens, it's unmistakable. And the pastor stood up in the pulpit at the end of the revival. He goes, well, I feel revived. I don't know about you. What does that mean? What that means is they weren't really seeking God for for true revival. But they want to encourage people. They want people to get discouraged. So they make it up. I don't want that. When I pray for revival, I want a move of God that is unmistakable. That not just me, but other people point to and go, God is doing something. God is moving in a special way. Sinners are being converted. People are selling out for Christ. Old relationships are being reconciled. That's a move of God. So Paul, in this passage, gives us the foundation, the basis that we can come to God believing that he's going to answer our prayers. You ever wonder why atheists celebrate Thanksgiving? That puzzles me still. They do. About a month and a half from now, they'll celebrate, two months from now, they'll celebrate Thanksgiving. But who are they thankful to? Thanksgiving, by its very definition, it needs an object. Right? If you're thankful, you're thankful to somebody for something. I guess they could just say, well, I'm thankful to the universe. 
But then you're ascribing consciousness to the universe, and then it becomes a god, and you're no longer an atheist. Do you see the problem there? Thanksgiving is a part of the worship of God. We should be a thankful people. We should be a thankful people. Paul was a thankful Christian. Psalm 106.1 says, Praise you the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. How much of our praying includes thanksgiving? Thank you, God. Somebody said this morning in prayer meeting, thank you for what you're going to do. I like that. Thank you, just in advance, for the answer to our prayer. When George Mueller once prayed, he lost a key. He prayed the Lord would direct him to the key, and then he said at the end of his prayer, and thank you, Lord, for leading me to the key, lest I forget to thank you after I find it. Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Thanksgiving should be a regular part of our prayers. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 real quick. Philippians chapter 4. We're talking about the foundation of answered prayer. Paul is giving thanks to the Father because it's the work of God the Father that is the foundation of our confidence in having our prayers answered. Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. That means anxious. Boy, that would change our Christian life, wouldn't it? Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. Don't be anxious. It's easy to say, isn't it? Don't be nervous. Carmen, you're going to fly in an airplane. Don't be anxious. Don't be nervous. Amen. You realize God has pre-written your days before the foundation of the world? Yeah. Jackie, don't be worried about your job. Don't be anxious. He promised, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Amen. What things? Food, clothing, necessities of life. Nobody's going to witness the gospel and God can let them starve to death. Amen. Don't be anxious. Be anxious, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here that we're not to worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Worry's natural, right? You hear that a lot. My mom used to say, it's my job to worry. I'm a mom. She was wrong. Worry's natural, but it's wrong. It's sinful. Hey, anger is natural, but it's wrong and sinful, right? Violence can be natural, but it's wrong and sinful, right? So, oh, well, I'm, I have to worry. It's just it's, it comes to me naturally. No, 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 no. See, we're to put the, to, to, to we're put we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Bible commands us: don't worry, pray. Don't worry, pray. And too often what we do is we half obey the command. We go to pray, and then we, as we go, we're like, we're like Lord, I lay my, my worries down before you. And as we walk away, we take them back with us again. No. We're to leave them there. We're to leave them there. Worry on our part calls into question the sovereignty of God. Think about that. If God is in control of everything, which he is, Ephesians 1.11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, catch this part, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He is in charge of all things. 
And if we can't change anything, which we can't, Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And to get this part, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? We can't, we can't change our circumstances. God is in control. We can't change it. And if he's working all things for our good, which he is, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So if God is in control of all things, which he is, and if we can't stop him, which we can't, and in that control, he's working all things for our good, what do we do? Well, instead of worrying about things we can't control, we simply surrender ourselves, our situations, our jobs, our worries, to the Lord, who works all things after the counsel's own will, and who works all things together for my good. But when we do that, when we take our problems, when we, when we leave our anxieties with the Lord, we say, okay, Lord, your will be done. How often do we say that out loud with our hearts? We're like, but my will really be done. Elizabeth Elliot used to always say, the important part of surrender is not surrendering to Christ's will, or not surrendering, not surrendering our anxieties to Christ's will, but surrendering our will to Christ's will, Right? We bring our anxieties to Christ and we say, here. But then we have to leave our, our will there as well. It's easy to play lip service and say, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we believe. Lord, it's your. But we need, to, we need to be okay with whatever he says. We need to pray. What is that I said before? Make our request known to God, but be okay with no. It may not be his will. The answer may come back no. Are we okay with that? Will we give thanks? I mean, we always, we always do that, don't we? we? We get to prayer meeting, and God healed the cancer. Praise the Lord, Reuben, for your sister. God healed the cancer. And rightly, we gave thanks. But sometimes he doesn't heal the cancer. Sometimes the cancer takes a life. And in that time, we need to give thanks. Sometimes the car breaks down. We need to give thanks. Sometimes we lose the job. We need to give thanks. We don't just give thanks for the good things. We give thanks for the bad things because he's working all things together for our good. So bad things are good things in the Christian life. So trust the Lord to handle everything according to his will, but then surrender our will to his will. But prayer alone is not the answer. We must add thanksgiving. Why? Well, he's worthy of it, first of all. He's worthy. We're undeserving of any of the blessings that we have. Amen. And then a lack of thanksgiving leads to complaining. If we're not a thankful people, we're going to complain. Because we didn't get our way. A thankful people don't complain. I remember the story of Corey Ten Boom in the concentration camp. If you remember the story of Corey Ten Boom, we see her as a spiritual giant, but at the time, she even confesses in her books that her sister was the spiritual giant, and she wasn't. You guys all know the story I'm going to reference, probably. 
They had lice in the barracks. Terrible lice that covered them all the time. And her sister, she was complaining about it one day. Her sister said, Corey, give thanks for the lice. And she's like, I'm not going to give thanks for the lice. I'll give thanks for a lot of things. I'm not giving thanks for the lice. It was some time later. They would hold Bible studies. She snuck, snuck, smuggled a Bible into the prison. They'd hold Bible studies with the ladies. People were getting saved. And one day she asked, wonder why the guards never come through our barracks to make inspections. And her sister said, it's because of the lice. They don't want lice, so they stay out of our barracks. Corey said, that day I learned to give thanks for the lice. Everything, everything works for our good. Even the seemingly bad things. We were seven of that chapter. There's a promise attached. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We're commanded to pray about everything with thanksgiving. And the result of our obedience is that God will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let me say this. We have no claim to that promise apart from thanksgiving. If we're not a thankful people, we can't believe that the peace of God is going to rule our hearts. It rules our hearts because we're thankful people. The promise is attached to being thankful. And this is a peace that passes all human understanding. It means you'll have peace when the world can't understand how you have peace. John and Charles Wesley came to America as missionaries when they were still unconverted themselves. Just religious people. And on the ship over here, you know, travel in the 1700s wasn't like what it is in 2022. The rickety wooden ship they're traveling on, they got caught in a storm. They were pretty sure they were going to die. The crew was pretty sure they were going to die. There's a group of Christians called the Moravians. You guys ever heard of the Moravians? Let me backtrack a little bit. The Moravians were the group. There was, there was a couple of missionaries, very famous missionaries. They sold themselves into slavery because they wanted to go to an island of slaves to preach the gospel to them. And the only way to get there was to be slaves themselves. And they had a very famous saying as their, as their boat pulled away from the harbor and their families gathered to see them for the last time. These weren't missionaries who were coming home on furlough. They sold themselves into slavery and their families were weeping. These Moravian missionaries shouted out from the boat not to weep. The lamb must receive the full reward of his suffering. Very famous saying. Moravians were very godly people. As John and Charles tried to sleep through the storm, as they faced death, they heard singing. And John Wesley followed the noise and found a group of Moravian Christians all gathered in one room, singing hymns to the Lord. And he wondered, how could they have such peace as they faced death? That was the peace that passes all understanding. Go back to our text in Colossians chapter 1. One of the great truths of prayer is that answers we receive are not rooted in us. We need to understand that. You ever, you ever sin? Of course you do. You ever sin and you don't, you don't pray because you sinned? I've done that before. 
Kind of like you're hiding from God, as if we can hide from God. I've been, I've sinned before, and use that as, as an excuse not to pray. Oh, I can't pray. I'm just, I, I can't pray. I'm in sin. That's where you should go if we are in sin, right? We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But the problem with my thought in that moment is that I believe the answers to my prayers are rooted in me. They're not rooted in my goodness. God doesn't answer my prayers because I'm not sinning right now. And when I do sin, God can still answer my prayer, especially my prayer of repentance, right? Because his promise to hear me and answer me is not rooted in me. It's rooted in him. Just like our salvation. You realize that if we were saved because we're good people, we could easily lose our salvation if we're not good people. But we're not saved because of us. Our salvation is rooted in who God is and what he has promised. And therefore, even if we backslide, even if we sin, even if we wander a little bit, he doesn't cast us away because it was never on us. It was on him and he changes not. I need to realize that answers to my prayers are not rooted in who I am. I don't earn them. I feel especially holy today, Debbie, so I'm going to pray more today. We do that, don't we? We do that as if it's rooted in who we are. We can't pray sincere enough to move God. We can't move him by our eloquence. The fact that our prayers are heard and answered is completely outside of you and me. It's rooted in who God is. So when he says, giving thanks unto the Father, he's about to explain why he's giving thanks to the Father. This is the very foundation of our answered prayer. It's rooted in who God is, not in who we are. Remember, everything pertaining to salvation is rooted in God, not in us. You guys remember when, when uh, God made the covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament? What happened when somebody made a covenant? You would sacrifice animals, you'd split them down the middle, and then you both would walk through the animal, confirming that you're both going to hold up each end of your covenant, right? What happened with Abraham? God put him to sleep, made the sacrifice, split the animal, and then he walked through by himself, obligating himself to fulfill both sides of the covenant. So in other words, everything in our salvation, even our answered prayer, is rooted not in us, but in God, in who he is. That's why we have to love the immutability of God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. That's why my prayers are heard. Because he's the same. We talked about it last night, right? The question and answer. Our emotions are up and down. If we go by our emotions, it's a roller coaster. Today I feel it. Today, tomorrow I don't feel it. I feel like walking with God today. I don't feel like it today. If my salvation, if my obedience depended on my own emotions and feelings, it'd be like this. But my salvation is rooted in Christ who's like this. Straight across. He never changes. So what if happens if I sin? I go to him because he never changes. What if I'm anxious? I go to him because he never changes. What if I don't feel like serving God today? I go to him because he never changes. So the Father did three things for us here in our text, which opened the door for us to approach him in the first place and to receive answers. Number one, he qualified us. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet 
to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He made us meet, this is fancy King James language, for he qualified us. So why is Paul giving thanks to the Father? Because the Father qualified him to come make these requests in the first place. In the natural order of things, we were disqualified from a relationship with God. First of all, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 You have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were strangers to God, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's Ephesians 2.12 if you're here today, you're a Gentile. Not only were you born dead in trespasses and sins, but you were a stranger from the covenants of promise. You weren't part of the community. You weren't among those that God had chosen to be his covenant people. That's what Paul's saying there. The Jews, they had a leg up on us, didn't they? To them was given the law. To them, God appeared, made himself known. Not to the Gentiles. He didn't reveal himself to the Canaanites the same way he did to the nation of Israel. Or to Egypt the same way he did to the nation of Israel. Or to Edom the same way he did to the nation of Israel. Right? You and I, we're Egypt. We're Edom. We're the Canaanites. We are outside the camp of God's people. We are far from the covenants of promise. All the covenants made to Abraham did not apply to us. But Christ brought us near. We didn't come near. We didn't earn our position. He brought us in to his community. He made us his children. Romans 8, 8 says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. In our sinful condition, folks, we could not please God. We couldn't do it. Only a work of God could change that in us. So what did he qualify us for? Well, to be partakers of the inheritance. This gives us the picture of the inheritance received by the Old Testament Israelites when they came into the land, doesn't it? When they entered the promised land, they were given inheritance. They were given land, vineyards, and homes. Homes they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, fruit they didn't harvest. It was given to them by God. Undeserved, by the way. As we saw from their 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't deserve it. But it was given to them. It was their inheritance. God graciously chose to give it to them. This rings true for us in our salvation. It's a glorious picture. We don't deserve this salvation, this inheritance that we have, both by nature of being Gentiles and by being dead in our sins. We have no claim to God. But Paul walks right in front of him into his throne and makes these requests and believes that God's going to answer him based on the fact that he's now qualified to stand before God. He has made him qualified. I'm going to use the former president as an example because the current president's older and doesn't have any children, but when President Trump took office, he had a young son. And you know, if I wanted to go see the president, I couldn't do it. <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. I had no right to walk in his office and ask for anything. But his son... Now, he had a right that I didn't have, didn't he? He could walk right through the doors, right up to the desk. Dad, can I have this? Because he's a son. I didn't have that. But let's just say the president adopted me. Wouldn't that be nice? That will? <laughs> let's say he adopted me. 
Now what? Well, now I can walk right through the doors, right up to his desk, and say, Dad, can I have such and such? And I can expect an answer. Why? I'm a son. I'm qualified. Not by birth, but by his action. He qualified me, right? So when I die, and my will is read, and that $5.75 that I have to my name is dispersed, none of you have a right to it. The sky and Dale do. Not by birth. I've qualified them. I called them by my name. I brought them into my family. They are my kids. They can walk up to me anytime and distract me anytime and take my time and take my money and take my attention away. You know why? Because they're mine. Not because they were born to me, but because I qualified them. I brought them near. So Christ has adopted us. He's brought us near. He, or God the Father, I should say, has adopted us through Christ, brought us near, qualified us now to walk right up to his throne and say, Father, can I have this? Father, do this. Father, give them spiritual understanding. Father, give them more holiness. Father, meet their needs financially. Father, heal the cancer. We have that right because of who God is. He qualified us. He brought us near to himself. We don't deserve our salvation or our inheritance. It's God who qualifies us. It's the work of his grace. Deuteronomy 6, 10, and 11 says, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swore unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Folks, today we've eaten and we're full of the mercy and grace of God by houses that somebody else built, wells they dug, vineyards they planted. They being Christ, we received our inheritance on the work, on the effort of somebody else. Once again, it was God's gift of grace. We see this dynamic in salvation. I'm not going to return there, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, if you want to make a note and read that later. Salvation is all the work of God. Verse 1, verse 5, he quickened us or made us alive. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You didn't quicken yourself. You didn't crawl out of the grave of your depravity, nor did I. He called us out. As powerfully as he said in the garden the day, Lazarus, come forth. He said, Rick, come forth from your depravity. Come forth from your sin. Come forth from your deadness. It's like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? God who commands light to shine out of darkness. He compares salvation to the beginning of the world, right? In the beginning, God, God spoke, said, let there be light, and there was light. And so God came to my dark heart one day, and he spoke, and there was light where there was once darkness. There was love where there was once hatred. There was righteousness where there was once sinfulness. I didn't do it. He did it. He did it. He quickened us. He made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up. 
Verse 6, he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you read Ephesians 2, the emphasis is always on he, he, he. He quickened you. He raised you up. He made you sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, he gives us grace through faith, which is a gift, not from ourselves or of our own goodness. All the work is his. He qualified us. He made us worthy. He made us, he made us, uh, he gave us the right to come into his family. He made us worthy to receive the position we have. Back in Colossians 1, this is why he's thanking the Father, because it is the Father who qualifies us to even approach him in the first place. We approach God based on his goodness, not on ours. Our lot, our inheritance in Christ, is completely a work of God's grace. Remember the story of Mephibosheth in the Bible? It's a hard word to say. The lame son of Saul. David had a right to kill him when he took the throne. He had a right to kill all the household of Saul. He didn't, did he? He showed mercy to Mephibosheth. He didn't just put him off in a back house somewhere in the palace. He brought him to his own table. And he said, you're going to sit here at my table all the days of your life. I'm going to show you mercy. Mercy. That's what Christ did with us. Yeah. He didn't have to. He didn't owe it to us. He could have destroyed us in our sin. And he doesn't put us in the back house, does he? He qualifies us. He qualifies us to sit at his table. Right there at the head of the table. We're watching a, I was watching, I think my wife kind of, she was looking at her phone. I don't know if she was watching it with me, but I was watching a state dinner with Queen Elizabeth when she was alive. And you notice at the head of the table, what do you see? I mean, you see hundreds of people in this room, some way down at the end of the table. They can't even see the queen. And then at the head, you see the queen, her guest, which was President Trump at the time. Next to her was who? At the time, it was Prince Charles, now King Charles. Her son, what a place of honor next to the queen. What a place of position, right? To be right. I mean, there's people at that table who couldn't even see them. They're so far away. But he's there by birth. But when Ephesians says he seated us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he seated us at the head of the table by the king himself. That's what I mean. Let that sink in. Our position in Christ is completely from him, not from us. It's not natural. It's not earned. It's given. So he qualified us. Secondly, he delivered us from the power of darkness. Verse 13. He thanks the Father who had delivered us from the power of darkness. This is a, this is a big thing that's often overlooked in salvation. To be saved is to receive a new heart with new desires. 1 Corinthians 5.17, Right? So we don't preach reformation. We preach regeneration. It's easy to reform yourself. It's easy to clean the outside of the cup. When I preached in the prison, I, I had to really emphasize that. Man, I'm not preaching to change your life. I'm not preaching to clean yourself up. I'm not preaching to be a better citizen. I'm preaching to come to Christ. He'll make you those things. But if it's not from the heart, it's not real. We don't want reformation. We want regeneration. 
This is the problem with Christians in politics. We're trying to pass Christian laws to make it more moral, but that just fixes the outside. We can reform society all we want. We can make it a practicing Christian society where people die and go to hell by the millions because it's regeneration of the heart. That's what God has done for us. He didn't just clean up the outside. He changed the whole inside. He made a new person within us. He delivers us not only from the guilt of our sin, but the power of sin. Too often, I think we overemphasize the guilt part, right? I was taught, I was taught to share the gospel. I was taught to ask people, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You know, going to heaven is not the object of our salvation. It's the result of it, but it's not the object. The object of our salvation is reconciliation with God. It's to be a new creature, right? He didn't just free us from our guilt. He didn't just free us from our destination being hell. He released us if we're truly saved. We are released from the power of sin. It no longer holds us. Now, we can yield ourselves to sin, right? Romans chapter 6. Or can we yield ourselves to righteousness? But it's that power that sin has over us. That control that it has, that grip that it has in our heart has been released in Christ Jesus. The power of sin. That's what Paul says when he says, I'm crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. That's the point he's trying to make. He's trying to make, I'm dead, right? I'm on the cross. I'm dead. I'm crucified, but I'm still alive. And it's Christ who lives through me. It's no longer Paul that lives. It's no longer Rick that lives. It's Christ who lives in us by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a work of God. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Dead yet alive. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. The flesh is there, but the power that is at work in us is, at work in us is the Holy Spirit. So what's the foundation for our answered prayer? Our believing that God will hear and answer our prayers. First of all, we're qualified by God alone to do it. Amen. I can approach God with confidence because he has brought me near and called me his son. I have the right to ask him things. I have the right to expect an answer from him. Yes. Not based in me, but based in him. He's delivered me from the power of darkness. He has freed me from the sin that held me. How will he not also with Christ also give me freely all things? Romans chapter 8. He that spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How shall he not also with him also freely give us all things? Yes, we can believe that God will answer our prayers because he has given up his only son for us. Yes, of course he'll meet my needs. Of course he'll give me more holiness. Of course, he'll draw me nearer in fellowship. Of course, he'll give me spiritual understanding. And number three, he translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Verse 13b. The word translated in King James means to transfer from one location to another. Let me give you a couple of examples. Enoch was translated, Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So for Enoch, one minute he was here, walking around the earth. The next, he was in the presence of God. Philip was translated. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 38. Philip is ministering to an Ethiopian who gets saved, who gets baptized. 
And listen to this, verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found in Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So they come up out of the water from the baptism. The Spirit catches away Philip. He's no longer found with the eunuch. Now he's found 200 miles away. He was moved from one location to another. When the Bible says that God the Father translated us into the kingdom of his Son, it means he literally moved us, translated us, caught us away from the kingdom and power of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. That is to say, like Philip, when Tatsuo believed, he was found no more. Not, not with the eunuch, not, not in the world. He was found over here in the kingdom of the Son. And he went on his way rejoicing and praising the Lord. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed, moved, translated, really, from death to life. How does he make this transfer? Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He redeems us from our sin through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He was the perfect offering for sin. Through him we have forgiveness. All the sacrifices that came before could never, could never break the power of sin. Could never make a man right with God. Could never make a man qualified to enter the presence of God the Father. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which, which they offered year by year continually, made the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Through the blood of Christ, God's Son, we have complete forgiveness of sins. They're taken away, never again to be remembered. We sang about that, didn't we, in that song today? So let me summarize and make application of all of this. When we pray, when we pray, pray real prayers. Pray spiritual prayers. Wrestle in prayer. Wrestle till God gives you the prayer for so-and-so. Read the word until God speaks to you. Grab a hold of his garment and say, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm not letting go until you give me a word for today. It's not the Reader's Digest, guys. It's not a novel. I love novels. I love fictional books. The Bible is not a novel. It's not there for entertainment. It's there to make us holy. It's there to get into our hearts. We've got to wrestle with it. If I read the word and I get nothing out of it, I just, okay, did my reading for the day, I'm done. I'm unmoved, unstirred. Can I expect God to do anything in my life at all? No. No. What does that mean? Well, i got to get to work, Pastor. I can't do that all day. Then get up earlier. Call in sick. Tell them I can't come to work today. God hasn't spoken to me yet. Do something. Then go to work. Take your Bible and read it during your lunch break. Don't eat lunch. Get back in there. Grab that garment again and say, God, I got a half hour. Speak to me or I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to you again when I get home from work. And when you get home from work, get back in there again. 
Say, I'm not going to bed until you bless me. Jesus. Say, Pastor, I, I may be up all night. Yeah. Jesus was sometimes too. That's right. That's right. It's okay. What I'm saying is don't settle for mundane, basic, I'm, I'm just going to read the Bible like it's a book because it's my duty to do. Your and my duty is not to read the Bible. Your duty and my duty is to become more like Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's our duty. That's our duty. If we're not doing that, then we're not doing our duty yeah. before God. Right. Grab a hold of God right. and say, I'm not leaving until you speak to me. Hallelujah. I'm going to pray this until you answer it, yes or no. By the way, I also pray, Lord, make me willing for the no. Make me, you know, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. So when we pray, can we know that our prayers are being heard and answered? Yes, absolutely, emphatically, yes. The foundation of that is if we ask in faith from a pure heart, according to the will of God. What is this confidence rooted in? Is it rooted in you and me? No. It's rooted in who God is, what he's promised, and that he changes not. It's completely outside of us. In and of ourselves, we're completely unqualified uh, and unable to approach God for anything. Our confidence comes from the fact that the Father has forgiven us the blood of Jesus Christ, thus freeing us from the power of sin, transferring us to the kingdom of his dear sons, seating us at his head table and qualifying us to come before his throne. This is the foundation of the confidence that Paul had. This is the foundation of the confidence that you and I should have in our prayer lives. And thus we, like Paul, give thanks to the Father who has done everything on our behalf. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father... We thank you this morning. We thank you that you qualified us. We thank you that you brought us near, Lord. We thank you that you've done so much for us. All, all outside of us. We can't look to ourselves for our righteousness or our salvation. We look to you. We can't look to ourselves as the basis of our answered prayers. We have to look to you. All of the eloquence, all of the good praying that we can muster couldn't change one thing. Help us to plead the promises of God. Help us to pray the scriptures. Help us to realize that our praying is completely outside of us. When we sin, drive us to prayer. That's not the time to run from prayer. That's the time to pray more. Because it's not rooted in us. It's rooted in you. And you change not. You've qualified us. We are, we are but your children. And we have the right to walk right into your throne room and to make requests and believe confidently that you will answer those requests because of the righteousness and the mercy of your son. We ask you in Jesus' name for things because we're in Christ. And so, Father, you treat us like you treat Jesus Christ. And you never ignore him. He has free access. We have free access. We're joint heirs with Christ. Thank you for qualifying us to be your children. 
to pray confidently. Thank you for breaking the power of sin in our lives. A sinful man could never enter the presence of God. A sinful woman cannot please God, Romans chapter 8. But you've freed us from the power of sin, and now we, as righteous men and women, can approach you confident that what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're asking, you will answer. Thank you for transferring us from the kingdom of this world, from the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of your Son, where we're joint heirs. We reign with Christ in his kingdom. He has made us kings and priests with him. And so now, as joint heirs with the Son, we walk boldly and we ask you, Lord, do a work in our church. Do a work. Revive our hearts, Lord. I want a work of God that is so clear and so on point that people outside of this church will look at this church and say, God has done something among those people. We don't want to fake it. We don't want to pretend. We don't want numbers. We don't want a room full of people. We want people who love Jesus. And I believe that we have the right basis to ask that today. Help us to love you more. Draw us nearer, Lord. Save people in Lomita and South Bay through the efforts of our church. Help us to be impactful in foreign missions. Help us to reach the lost. Help us to sell out our lives fully to you. No half-hearted commitments, Lord. We don't, we don't want half-hearted Christianity here. Full surrender in all of us, Lord. Don't let us hold back. And we ask these things not because of who we are, but because of who you are. How great thou art. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me and we will.